Welcome to In The Room with me, Ronnie Barber. In this series, we'll be talking to politicians, YouTubers, sports stars and scientists about the defining moments of their lives. From the classroom to the boardroom, the briefing room, the dressing room and a whole lot more. We'll find out how the rooms of our lives shape the decisions we make. In this episode, we hear from Sir David King, Chair of the Independent Sage Group and former Chief Scientific Advisor to Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. Now, obviously, there was a lot to talk about in terms of our current situation. If they had gone into lockdown earlier, which would be any scientific advice, you've got to get ahead of an epidemic, not follow it. We could have saved 35,000 lives. That's the cost of delay. But we also look at how he dealt with the foot and mouth epidemic. I was given quite a hostile time by quite a few members of the media. You know, you're, you're culling healthy animals was a big charge, but I, I, I couldn't duck it. And we find out how his interest in science was first peaked. And I explained to her that I found the guinea pig dead and I was cutting it up to find out how it worked. A word of caution, we recorded this interview in October before the government announced the latest lockdown. Anyway, the first room I put Sir David in was in 10 Downing Street in 2001, as the foot and mouth epidemic took hold in the UK. Right, so first of all, I take you back to the beginning of the uh, epidemic itself, which was uh, uh, around third week in January 2001. And for three weeks, the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Fisheries was, as would be expected, in charge of managing the epidemic. However, it was increasing exponentially, just as our pandemic is right now. And it was very clear that whatever they were doing was not bringing it under control. Uh, at this point, the Prime Minister calls a meeting of all of the permanent secretaries of the departments of government, and I was part of the permanent secretaries group, so I was at that meeting. And I was the only one who came up with a very clear suggestion as to what was happening, because at this point in time, I had already been talking to a group of epidemiologists, uh, veterinary scientists, and so on, to see what was happening and why it was out of control. And so the Prime Minister responded by calling me back in and simply saying, tell me all about it, which I did. He then said, right, we want to put you in control. I will see you every day. You will be the person going on television and explaining to the British public what you were doing, why you were doing it, and if things start going right, explaining why, if they start going wrong, you will explain why. But I won't be appearing on television. You've said as well, in light of what's going on at the moment, and we can go to that later on, but is there a certain set of skills you need as a scientist to talk to politicians? Yeah, there's no question. I think... There's a, there's a bunch of skills that a chief scientific advisor needs, and I'm not going to suggest that all chief scientific advisors have these skills. And in fact, when I took on the job, I wasn't even sure that this was a job I could manage. To be honest, I only took on the job because I was very keen to get the government to focus much more heavily on the issue of climate change. So... I came into government, foot and mouth disease comes along, I bring in this group of experts, talk to them, 
And the way I do this, I couldn't even say the word epidemiology when this began, because my area of science is physical sciences, and I, I was as far removed from biological sciences as you could imagine. But I found very quickly that I could ask all the dumb questions that somebody outside the field could ask, and listen to the answers and understand them, and then cross-examine people and determine from that what I understood about the disease. Now, that's the first thing. Being able to step outside your own area of expertise is absolutely critically important. And it turns out that I could do that, and I really enjoyed doing that. Now, the second thing is communication. Uh, you need to be able to communicate without using acronyms, without using private terminology. You've just got to always remember that you're talking to extremely intelligent people. And as long as you talk their language, or you speak in a language they can understand, they will be able to follow you. My big training in this area was a daughter who, I think when she was about seven, came into the bedroom when I was uh, in bed having a cup of tea in the morning and simply said, Dad, why can I hear you? Why can I hear what you're telling me? <laughs> in other words, she wanted to understand something about how sound travels, how it, how it works, how your ears operate. And I, I just took a deep breath and I thought, right, I'm never going to dumb down to my daughter, but I'm going to speak at her level. My daughter and I, when she was 11, measured the speed of sound together, and we measured it quite accurately. And so, in other words, she kept up an interest in this subject all along, just continually asking me questions. i give you another example. She stood outside the bedroom door one morning and she said, Dad, can you hear me? I said, yes, come in. And she opened the door and she said, so now why could I hear you? The door was closed. Right? So if the air is bringing the noise to my ear, what happened then? So the point is, I, I unexpectedly found it was actually a pleasure to communicate and explain in some detail uh, now, if, if I give you Tony Blair as an example, this is an exceptionally clever man. He, he's, a, he's, a, he's a lawyer by training, a barrister by training. He, he absorbs information and he never forgets it, which is why he was so good at PMQs. Once I had briefed Tony Blair, six months later, he's asked a question about this in Parliament. He could give the answer and he could give it in a very intelligent way. So... I, I knew that all I had to do was have patience and we used to spend an hour together at a time so that he had time to understand things. He wanted to understand it to the point where he could repeat it back to me. So the last 20 minutes he would always repeat back and I'd say, yep, you've got it. So this, this was a really important skill, but the next skill I think is critically important. And this is not, particularly well understood. The chief scientific advisor is very different in government from a scientist, say I was head of chemistry at Cambridge University, a scientist at, uh, in a university, where essentially you are keeping away from the political scene, you are beavering away at problems, and you are being totally objective, you're not looking at how politics interacts with it. You go into government, 
it is your function to be the bridge between the latest developments in science and the political system, which means that you're giving policy advice. You're not ducking policy issues. And that means you've got to have more than a smattering of understanding of economics, social sciences, and so on. Now, I'm quite widely read. I, I'm enjoying always learning about subjects outside my area of speciality. So I think I was able to do that. Now, I think that is the combination of skills that's really required. How important was it then? Because Tony Blair told you, you will be the, the uh, mouthpiece really in, on policy on this one. How important was it then, do you think, and in, in, in light of what we're going through at the moment, to be honest with the public and and say what you were thinking and and how you were dealing with it was it was there ever a point where a politician around the table said hang on today we, we we can't we can't be that honest with the with the public and did you have to rebut that and say no no we must this is a very important question absolutely key so in the run-up to my taking the job, which was towards the end of the year 2000, I took it in October 2000, um, we had come to the end of the BSE crisis, another livestock crisis in the British farming. And during the BSE crisis, the minister in charge of MAF was very keen to explain to the public on television that there was no danger in eating British beef. He didn't want to lose the beef market. That was, I'm afraid, the big driver there. But at the same time, the scientific community was aware of the fact that something called variant CJD was emerging in some members of the human population. And variant CJD is a brain disease very similar to BSE in cattle. And they were saying, watch out, there may well be a direct connection. These people becoming ill may well be eating a lot of beef, and that could be where they're picking up variant CJD from. But that didn't get into the public domain because in the scientists in the government departments were not allowed out onto television explaining things freely and frankly. Phillips was, Lord Phillips was given the job of setting up a commission to report to government on how well or badly they had handled the BSE crisis. And this was the major recommendation of the Phillips Commission report that each government department should, if possible, have a chief scientific advisor. At that point, I was the government chief scientific advisor. And in addition, the chief scientific advisor should have an open voice so that he or she can explain to the public what advice they're giving into government. When the government ministers, as happened in this case, say we're following the advice of the, of the scientists, you can only judge that if you know what the advice of the scientists is to the government. That was very clear from Phillips. And so I simply used that as my mantra in government, open, honest, transparent. And when any minister of government or the prime minister ever said to me, you shouldn't be saying that in public. I responded in the way I've just given you.
Um, we'll step out of this room for for a bit, if you don't mind, because I was reading about uh, you grew, you were born in South Africa. Um, can I go into your classroom and even maybe your bedroom when you're growing up? Because I'm interested in, uh, you were saying there, you, you are very interested in science and policy. Um, but first of all, science. Um, when did that click for you? When when was science a thing and, and was there any influences when you were growing up? I think, I think I've, obviously, I've thought about this. And uh, the answer is that uh, I, I can remember when I was very young, about three or four years old, this memory of my mother coming across me with a very sharp knife in my hand, cutting up a guinea pig. We had guinea pigs in a hutch. And I explained to her that I found the guinea pig dead and I was cutting it up to find out how it worked. Uh, she was in a state of shock. Right? <laughs> and and I, I couldn't understand it. I just still remember to this day thinking, I'm just trying to find out how this damn thing works. I want to see the muscles and everything else. Now, so, you know, it sounds a bit strange, but there we are. I, I've always, it turns out, wanted to understand how things work. It's, uh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not what, what I would call a stamp collector. I don't just collect facts. I want to know how things work. And that, that's been a big driver for me. I don't think there's any one event. Um, I, I took an interest in, in the science subjects. But, you know, in South Africa, we had seven subjects at uh, final year of school. Uh, it was a matriculation process. And I, I was very interested in English, interested in writing poetry. There, I, I was interested right across the board. My, my eventual decision to go to and study chemistry was because my father was in the paint business and he wanted me to come in as a paint chemist. What about you at, at school? I would imagine sport was a part of it? Well, sport was a part of it, um, except that uh, over a period from the age of uh, eight through to the age of 11, I had a series of very serious diseases. So I, I suffered from intern scarlet fever, polio, meningitis, encephalitis, and then polio again. There are two varieties of polio. I managed to get both. So what that meant was that I didn't get much chance to make progress in sport. Now, you would say, oh, well, you must have got very interested in medicine. That was the last thing I wanted to do. I was in hospital for three, no, four out of those and isolated. So it, was, uh, it wasn't a pleasant occasion. And encephalitis and meningitis are just two of the worst possible diseases. But I, I think my... The other thing I really should say, if you're interested in my background in South Africa, is that I was eventually shepherded out of the country by the government. I had never been out of the country. I'd been, I, I was born there, bred there, went to university there, and was doing a PhD when I was asked to leave because I was supporting uh, the leader of the uh, African National Congress, who, uh, and the government had banned the African National Congress. That was 1961. And I was working with them, and I was picked up in 1963 and uh, asked to leave. So I arrived in Britain as, uh, on ex in exile from South Africa, uh, and, but I, I arrived and became a Shell Scholar and uh, went to Imperial College and the rest 
became my scientific life. Let's put you into the uh, Independent Sage uh, Committee group um, right now. Um, I remember, I always remember you being on TV about this uh, and saying that, you know, you wanted an independent that um, committee would actually uh, tackle it robustly and unbiased. The inference there is that the information that we were getting from the government scientists was biased and wasn't robust enough. Is that a fair, a fair assertion? It's not quite how I would put it. I think, I think what, what, what I was actually saying is that I was horrified, if you like, by the fact that the government wasn't allowing the scientists freely to go on television and radio. It was very clear when you have the prime minister standing with his scientific advisors on each side of him, that they, they were saying the things that they had to say rather than saying freely what they, what they knew and not facing Q&A in the way that, you, you know, during the foot and mouth disease epidemic, I was given quite a hostile time by quite a few members of the media. You know, you're, you're culling healthy animals was a big charge. So, you know, and to explain that in order to create a, a firewall around the farm that had gone down with the disease by culling out the animals on neighboring farms was quite challenging, but I, I, I couldn't duck it. Now, in the, in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic in, in Britain, a SAGE committee was formed, Science Advisory Group for Emergencies, with a bunch of experts, mostly epidemiologists, not public health experts. And to me, that was a, a mistake. But the point is that we didn't even know who was on SAGE. That wasn't put into the public domain. It was withheld by the government. Unbelievable the actual membership of the committee is withheld. Um, and so when we formed uh, the independent SAGE group, uh, our, our meeting was always preceded by a draft report. And then we had a public meeting and the public were invited to join in and ask questions. And then we would produce a final report based on what we had learned from the public returns. And while we were out there with our first public meeting, the membership of SAGE was published by the government and the first five minutes were published by the government. That was the first time we had any clarity from that point of view. There were redactions. There were redactions both in terms of the membership of SAGE and also in terms of the minutes. So it wasn't completely open. But I don't think we've seen a period when openness, honesty, and transparency has been followed during this pandemic until very recently, when the government received advice from SAGE, that is now more than four weeks ago, received advice from SAGE saying, we need to go into a short modified lockdown, right? And the government ignored the advice and ignored the advice in the face of exponential growth again. We were going back into the period that we had to go into lockdown for back in March. And in March, the government delayed going into lockdown two or three weeks after they could have gone into lockdown when the disease was spreading in the country at a rate of doubling every three to four days. That means quadrupling every week 
right? So when, when we see we have 45,000 deaths in the country today, I want to explain to people, if they had gone into lockdown earlier, which would be any scientific advice, you've got to get ahead of an epidemic, not follow it, we could have saved 35,000 lives. That's the cost of delay. And yet we're doing it again. In that room, you, when we go back to the foot and mouth, mouth was Alistair Campbell was famous with his spin doctor. Um, would you have walked out if Alistair Campbell, or would you have told him to go the way that we've seen, and you've, you've talked about the dangerous presence of Dominic Cummings at the, uh, at the SAGE meetings, and, and why was he there effectively? What, what would you have done if Alistair Campbell had said to you, you can't go there with this. You cannot, and we're not allowing you to say this. Uh, um, the way that I think, this is just my opinion, Sir David, uh, the way that the scientists here have been curtailed by Dominic Cummings and, and the spin machine. I think the whole point is that everyone from Tony Blair down un, in the cabinet and including Alistair Campbell understood exactly what my position was because I clarified it. Openness, honesty, transparency. I can give you a case where in 2003, no, 2002, three, the, the government had a new white paper on energy production for the country. We hadn't had a white paper for many decades and we had a white paper because we were committed to reducing emissions by switching away from fossil fuels. And the white paper was showing how we could do this. And I was heavily involved in its production. And I, I said, we're never going to manage to get away without fossil fuels unless we have nuclear new build. So I was pushing for nuclear peace power, that is nuclear energy, new build, to create carbon-free energy for the country. And it goes to a cabinet meeting at the, on the final day before it's going to go out into the public as a white paper. And a member of the cabinet had offered to resign if this was left in. And so Blair had removed the whole paragraph, the whole section on, on nuclear. And we had a discussion at the meeting and uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, John Prescott, was in the chair in place of Prime Minister. And at the end, they all agreed they would remove the nuclear bit. And I simply stuck up my hand at the other end of the table and said, I'm not going to disagree with this, but what I am going to say is that if I'm doorstepped as I work, walk out of here and ask, have you now changed your mind on nuclear? I'm going to say, no, I haven't but it's the government that makes the decision I can put in my advice. Right? And at this point, John Prescott became, shall we say, extremely angry. You've been privy to all of our discussions, etc. And now you come out and say, you would say this, you've got to say what we're saying. And the entire table went at John and simply said, Sir David has the trust of the public that gives us trust in him and we want him to keep the trust of the public. If he walks out and says, no, I've changed my mind, they will all say, all he's doing is following the cabinet decision. Right? So 
and, and immediately John Prescott simply calmed down and said, no, no, you're right. Fine, David, go ahead. That was the only occasion ever when that happened. Alistair Campbell, no, never did. And I don't think he ever would have. He and I saw each other quite often, got on reasonably well. Um, there was one occasion, which I can tell you, we, we were culling uh, animals on neighboring farms and on farms that were diseased. And uh, somebody discovered amongst a pile of animal bodies, I, I was given the army to help deliver this cull, massive mm, I cull. I remember it. Uh, somebody found a calf still alive in a pile of bodies and the calf was rescued. And I was saying, that's dangerous, right? This, this calf may well have foot and mouth disease, but Alistair Campbell stepped in and did say, we're going to save that cow. It's going to be a wonderful piece of publicity. They gave the cow a name, uh, the calf a name, yeah, and the headlines in the paper the next day with a photograph of this calf was calf saved from death. Uh, I, I was really upset because it was the wrong message and I told Alistair and he apologized. just wanted to talk about climate change and and you've been right at the front of the queue on this one and uh, you've written many many papers and um but i wanted to talk about in in a way what we're going through at the moment the the tensions between the disease and the economy and i suppose there is um tensions now of and always has been between climate and the economy is there any way that you think that we can get round those ways or are, are we in such a dire state in terms of the climate that it's too late to worry about economies we have to save the planet let me tell you in both cases it's a false dichotomy to say that science and the economics are apart so let me try to explain if you say as as was being said in the cabinet this year in march no, 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 don't go into a lockdown. What about the economy? There's that tension between the economy. Let the economy rip. And the, and the Prime Minister actually made a statement about that. You watch the disease doubling in the country. You can no longer handle it by test and trace. It gets beyond you as it's got beyond them again now. And it gets worse and worse for the economy. The hospitals, absolutely packed with people with uh, COVID-19. And so wh whatever you want to say about, well, let the people die, right? Which is kind of what is said when people say, well, there's going to be another 40,000 deaths from the current errors being made, which is like saying, let the people die. We've got to get the economy to recover. I said, no, the economy won't recover. If you look at this in terms of how many, the, the countries that are damaged in terms of economy and damaged in terms of loss of life, 
those countries with the highest loss of life are the countries that have got the severest damage to their economies. We're in that little group leading the way on both. That's not a good place to be. Yeah. If I take Greece, New Zealand, South Korea, Singapore, these are countries which each, each of these has had no more than 300 deaths. And here we are at 45,000 because they got ahead of it before it even got to their country. We didn't. We twiddled our thumbs. We didn't get a test and trace system even beginning up to up and run until May. You know, so what's the point of going into lockdown? It's to bring down the level of disease to the point where test and trace can isolate every individual who's got the disease from the rest of the population. Then we can get on with our economic business. Same thing with climate change. If, if you ignore the impacts of climate change, they will simply get more and more severe. And the impact on the global economy, the national economies all, all around the world will be enormous. Let me just say this. In roughly 30 years time, I'm gonna take you to Southeast Asia. Vietnam will be effectively underwater. Not, not just a few bits of it. South Vietnam effectively every year, massive flooding to the point where it becomes unlivable. Same is true of much of Bangladesh. Uh, same is true of, of uh, uh, um, Indonesia. Jakarta, the capital, won't be a livable city. In India, Calcutta and, and Mumbai, Mumbai will not be livable cities. We are looking at potentially 100 to 200 million people looking for somewhere else to live. And I've just picked out one part of the world and one impact and that's sea level rise. Right? There's also heat stress, all of these things. And that's in 30 years time. So if we don't start working on this now, we haven't got a chance, right? So it, it's become a very urgent matter today. And COVID-19 and the economic damage it's, it's bringing to the whole world it's like nothing compared with what I'm now describing. Can I just ask you one last thing then? Um, can I take you to a happy room somewhere? Because there's barely a day goes past, Sir David, that I don't see you on my telly. And, uh, and thank God for that. But can I take you to a room then, uh, when, when people are like me are not phoning you up and saying, can you just do a wee bit for us? Or, or your Piers Morgan wants you on the telly. Where, where, is, where is the happy room? What's in the happy room for you? What are you doing? Are you reading science? What, what is it you're doing? Are you, are you building uh, miniature buses like Boris does? What are you doing? I can tell you that today I'm as busy as I've been at any point in my life. And I am really energized by the fact that people are taking notice of what I'm saying. And I, I am talking both about climate change and now COVID-19. When I, when I began to be asked, please go out there and lead this thing on, on uh, Independence Sage, I said no at first because I want to keep my powder dry just for climate change. But 
I, I am really happy working the way I am because I'm still given an opportunity to do something about these enormous challenges. Um, and I've, I've got five grandchildren. You want to ask me what makes me a happy man? I only have to mention any one of them and I can tell you that gives me so much pleasure. I've got four children. <laughs> I feel exactly the same about them and their relationships, their families. So, no, no, there's a, there's a lot in my life that keeps me very happy. And I'm an optimist, right? I am an optimist. I'm, I'm telling you how things could be, but I'm only saying that because we must act. And I think we will act. You know, th mm -hmm. there's an imperative there for us to act. And we've got to do it. A big thank you to Sir David King. Next time, I'll be talking to Emma Blackery, a YouTube phenomenon with more than a million subscribers about the rooms which shaped her life. Um, it was overall a mixed bag for me at school. I didn't have a lot of friends. I think my attitude was a bit strange and I smelled a bit funny as well. Back then, okay. I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't take care of my hygiene very much. <laughs> I'll be honest. You know, I can say it now. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm less embarrassed by it now because um, I, yeah. I was just a smelly kid. Thanks for listening.